I'll be talking about more than just the Benjamins. Welcome to Fintech Beat, where finance, technology, and policy come together. I'm your host, Chris Brummer, and the future of finance is now. When one talks about regulating fintech, all too often, pundits and commentators set their sights on Washington, D.C. But for many fintech firms, the real action is in New York and the work done by the New York State Department of Financial Services. You see, unlike the feds who have more limited mandates over parts of the financial system nationally, the DFS exercises authority over virtually everything that happens in New York, including Wall Street. And it's been a pivotal actor in the fintech space, creating new licenses for virtual currency firms while launching high-profile investigations into payment cards and operators. In the middle of it all is Linda Lacewell, the superintendent of the Department of Financial Services, who has agreed to join the show on her official one-year anniversary and to talk about her plans for fintech in 2020 and her New York state of mind. Superintendent, thanks so much for making it onto the show. Thank you, Chris. It's a great pleasure. You've been on the job now for about a year, and you know it's always worthwhile asking regulators who are on the front lines of the action. I mean, how do you view um, everything that you've seen thus far? I mean, it, when you look at fintech in New York, you know, has your job been surprising? Uh, has it been more challenging? I mean, how do you feel about what you've seen, and, and more importantly, uh, the demands of the work? Yes, it's hard to believe that a year has gone by. It's been very, very fast. And what's so fascinating for me is I thought I knew this agency because I helped put it together from the New York governor's office in 2011, but a lot has changed since then. And so coming into DFS, the first thing I looked at is what is the agency doing? What is this aspect of government doing? And then what is the rest of government doing that should inform how I approach this particular position? And of course, I came in at a very interesting time where unfortunately some government agencies in Washington, uh, particularly the CFPB, are not really hewing to their original mandate of protecting consumers. Instead, we hear out of Washington week after week some new fresh outrage about vital protections being stripped away from vulnerable people, whether it's homeowners or consumers or the vulnerable or LGBT. The consumer I put at the center of financial services regulation, and that's vitally important to me. And then recently I took a trip to meet with our counterpart regulators in Europe, and I also met with those who were innovating. And the regulators who I spoke with who deal with innovators there said, we put the consumer at the center of innovation. And that rang true for me, and that was really the match And so that's really the segue to your subject matter, which is the approach to innovation for us. When many people think about innovation, nothing comes to mind more than cryptocurrencies. And I know that New York has been a leader in that space with the Bit License, which, for our uh, listeners, is a business license issued by the DFS to firms 
active in crypto activities. You've introduced reforms that would involve a web page maintained by the DFS that would list every virtual currency the DFS has reviewed and approved for listing. And and you've also introduced reforms about a self-certification process allowing virtual companies with these licenses to self-certify new virtual currencies in accordance with certain kinds of uh, approved coin listing or adoption policies. Now, these are pretty uh, interesting changes. What were the drivers behind the proposals and what feedback have you received? We, of course, took our small office that handled cryptocurrency and made that a full-fledged division parallel in scope and status to our banking and insurance divisions. And that's our new research and innovation division, which houses both fintech and cryptocurrency and related matters. And looking at cryptocurrency, where New York has traditionally led, our regulations for what is known as a bit license are about five years old. And as I had expressed, it was more than time to take a fresh look at those. Why? Because innovation is exactly that. It's change. And over the past five years, I think it's fair to say that the industry has developed, new business models have developed, a plethora of new coins, a lot of industry experience, and perhaps a growing maturation and sophistication, both of the entities themselves, the nature of the players, those who are running them. And yet we were still applying a set of regulations that were five years old without sort of the benefit of looking at them and thinking, what's working? What's not working? What are the gaps? What are the burdens and how do we strike the right balance, which is the daily job between regulation and either innovation or letting business grow and develop? And, and it's really funny because five years, obviously, in the virtual currency space, it's it's a lot of time. Yeah. You know, you know if, if it's more of the more traditional areas of finance, five years can go by, maybe a limited amount of change. But yeah, you know, uh, it, it's, 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 it's an infinity in, in some instances in, in, in virtual currency markets. And so, and so we had people come in and speak with us, lawyers and other experts, and also, uh, especially through Matt Homer, our brilliant innovation head, he's spoken with a great many people uh, to get feedback and input. And of course, we put this out for comment, but largely the reaction has been very positive. And I think that shows that it doesn't have to be that difficult for regulators to open up and have dialogue and try to pilot or experiment or make change along the way, informed by input of those who are doing the business side of that every day. And all of these problems that we face as regulators are very complex. And we're regulating uh, actors who are operating in the field and we need to understand what they're doing. They need to understand the risks that we're trying to regulate. And that's got to be a dialogue. It can't just be that we're the great oracle that speaks periodically, let alone every five years. That's not workable and it's not sustainable. Well, you know, you had mentioned earlier that you took some time to kind of uh, obviously build out that office. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit curious as, as a regulator, when you think through that, that, that process and you had mentioned uh, Matt Homer and, and the Office of Innovation, you know, w- what has been your, your overarching strategy and, and, and vision in terms of how do you build up an office given all these myriad uh, challenges and, and developments in the industry? 
Coming into DFS, it's interesting because even though it's a relatively new agency since it was a merger of banking and insurance back in 2011, that's actually a number of years without a fresh look at the agency. And so I felt empowered enough to look at it and say, well, obviously we have banking and we have insurance and we have a consumer division, but to meet the market to meet industry, to meet innovation, to meet the needs of consumers, to keep New York at the center of all of these things, how should the agency look? So we reinvigorated our consumer protection division by merging it with enforcement and the waves of innovation sweeping through all of our regulated industry are so powerful and are moving so fast, right, with the speed of change that I felt it was critically important to elevate that in priority, the matter of innovation, both because we want to encourage responsible innovation in New York, but also because we regulate banks that intersect and are sometimes a little intimidated by the innovators out there. And it's my responsibility to help nurture those industries while also nurturing innovation. And that's going to require potentially partnerships that are responsible between innovators such as FinTech and our community banks and hopefully generate a win-win in a way that's also consumer protective. Well, you had mentioned a couple of things which have obviously been some headline grabbers um, on the consumer protection front and then on the enforcement front. Uh, I know that the Apple card really sparked a, a lot of uh, interest in terms of the potential disparate impact uh, for some uh, women who are using that particular financial product. Is there an update um, pertaining to that investigation? And then more generally, how do you and, and other regulators sort of think about algorithms and, uh, and, and fintech and the role that they're playing uh, in financial inclusion? The matter of algorithms is really emblematic of this entire dialogue because we want innovation. Algorithms can be used in a very positive manner to uh, generate the availability of financial products and services for those who may not, for example, have traditional credit models, uh, maybe new entrants to our society or for whatever reason don't fit into what is usually um, the screening uh, that goes through to make sure that uh, the financial service company is acting in a responsible manner in deciding who they do business with. But at the same time, if not used properly, they can have unexpected results, including having a disparate impact either on women or on other protected communities that even if no one intended, uh, have exactly the same effect. Now, of interest on the insurance side of our business, we've already addressed this problem periodically. For example, we told auto insurers that they could not consider the education level or the occupation of the person applying for car insurance. Why? Because it has nothing to do with how they drive. And um, two, it can have a disparate impact on communities of color or other vulnerable populations that may not have the kind of jobs uh, at least at the same rate as other populations. And they should not end up either with higher rates of car insurance, which they can least afford, or the inability to get insurance. That's one. Two was on the life insurance space. We told life insurers 
that if they were going to rely on big data and things of the like, that they had to themselves determine whether these algorithms or big data type sweeps or applications were having a disparate impact on protected populations. So we were already positioned there when the complaints involving the Apple Card and Goldman were made. Um, we were already on that precipice where the complaint being made, of course, is that the Apple Card is not equally available to women. That's the complaint. So getting to the bottom of that, A, seeing if it's true, B, seeing why is that? Is it an algorithm? Is it multiple algorithms? What is it about the practices and what type of fair lending screening is being done? Are the rules that are already in place being followed? And if not, is there something wrong with it? And what are the lessons learned across the board? So on one level, it's a very active, ongoing, intensive investigation for that particular product. But at the same time, it sheds light on a full range of issues that are of great import today involving innovation, technology, big data, impact on protected classes, actors who probably were trying to do the right thing or at least not intending to do the wrong thing, and it may or may not have led to this. And equally important, consumer confidence because... If nothing was going wrong, why do people believe that it is going wrong? And do we have a little transparency black box problem around what the factors are that go into making credit decisions that allow people to believe that there's something afoot and maybe there isn't? So that whole range of issues is being looked at thoroughly and we want to get it right. So on these policy questions, we're talking to smart academic folks uh, and and to financial institutions and practitioners and uh, seeing what is the solution to this particular issue and what does this mean about where we should be pivoting with respect to guidance and or regulations across the board. The question of, of trust, you know, is is one that has always been associated with finance. You know, like that the, the, if you're involved in finance and you're not trusted, then, you know, good luck surviving in, in, in finance. And it, it does seem that you know, new companies um, are still financial actors and that trust is, 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 is really important. Um, one aspect of trust is just how widely are, are folks making their financial products available? Are they fair? And then, you know, are they really aiding financial inclusion, both from a standpoint of algorithmic fairness? And we've had some folks on this podcast talking about, you know, what constitutes a fair algorithm. But then there are just some, some very basic questions about, uh, you know, banking deserts and the availability that people have, not just digitally, but, you know, in their own backyard to financial services and in a practical way. I mean, is that something that you've also been thinking about and looking at? You know, are there any um, uh, either regulatory or legislative uh, proposals uh, geared towards thinking through that issue? From the beginning, we have been looking at the issue of financial inclusion, which is a problem even in New York. Uh, according to the FDIC, about 25% of New York households either have no bank account 
or even if they have a bank account, they're using other types of services that are very expensive, like check cashers and because they don't either trust the banking system or they need their money faster than they think the banks can give it to them. And what we have found and what I have found personally is access to financial products and services. This is not just about, well, I need a bank account. This is being a part of the community, being part of society, having a plan for the future, having dignity because you are just like everyone else in your ability to access the things that help you to put together a financial plan for yourself and for your future and for your kids. It's not about a brick and mortar bank and it's not even about access to some type of an online service. And we've got to fix this problem. Um, And there are a number of ways of doing it. We have a program where we can designate a particular geographic area as in need of development. We call it a banking development district. And then the state can actually put deposits into either a new bank or to help enlarge a smaller bank to give it a broader footing so it can be more active in the community and do more lending and also engage in financial literacy. And there are other programs similar to that too. And I've done a few of these since I've been in office And the reaction that you get from the community when you open one of these banks, everybody comes out, Democrat, Republican, upstate, downstate, it doesn't matter. They are all about the community is achieving this great success and we all have hope for the future. Your government is working. Your government saw your need and is coming in to do something for you. It's tangible, right? Right. And part of the problem I think we have in this country right now in the political arena is a lot of people are upset that they feel like government is not doing anything for them, whether it's gridlock in Washington or local scandals. They don't want to hear debates. As the governor says, government is not a debating society. I need help. Come help me. And this is an area that can be very rewarding to be impactful in. And the governor actually has proposed, as part of his State of the State proposal this year, akin to the State of the Union, a statewide office of financial inclusion and empowerment that would be based right here at DFS to address this on a statewide level. So is is that then the, the definitive... Um a sort of financial goal when you look forward to 2020? I mean, w- w- when you think about uh, what you want to achieve uh, looking forward, um, what are your priorities and, and, and where in uh, does that uh, financial inclusion piece fit? The financial inclusion agenda is really at the top of agenda for me at DFS. I think it's critically important. If we say that the consumer is the center of everything that we do, and then the people who are the most affected in the consumer world, which just means people, right? There's no consumers over there and us over here, we're all consumers. But the people who are affected are the ones who can least afford the additional debt or the bad product that is being sold to them and who most need access to the financial products and services that can help them, and that's communities of color. So we have a number of initiatives pending in our state legislature to try to generate more of a level playing field. At the same time, I would say that innovation is right up there, maybe tied at the top, because 
you've got to pay attention to innovation every day or you're going to be behind. And we've got to keep up. We've got to reinvent ourselves as a regulator. We have to be more agile and more data analytics driven and continual supervision. We've got to be equal to the task of engaging in the conversations and the debates and the policy discussions and achieving at the right guidance for innovators out there. And we've got to help our community banks in these potential partnerships where um, they can be helped as well. I mean, part of what I say to our community banks is this is a serious issue for you. This is akin to the internet and what it did to brick and mortar retail shopping and what it is still doing in that arena. And you've got to catch up and you've got to find ways to responsibly partner or you're going to be gone. There's already a lot of consolidation in banking and community banks are vitally important to communities. They lend to small businesses. They know the people in their communities. They do rural lending and farming lending. They are vitally important. They do a lot of things that the chases and the cities of the world don't have the capacity or the interest in doing because it's much more on a retail level and they're very important, especially outside of the urban centers. So financial inclusion, innovation, I would say those are the twin watchwords of 2020. On the innovation side, we've got our FinTech conference coming up. We joined, as you know, GFIN, uh, which is about 50 regulatory agencies around the world focused on innovation. And as soon as we got in, they voted that we should host the next GFIN conference right here in New York. And we look forward to everyone coming. And I want to hear all the ideas so that we can set the rest of the moving forward agenda on innovation. Great. Well, thank you so much, Superintendent, for joining the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. State regulators are essential pieces to the fintech ecosystem in the United States. They have deep, penetrating influence and can determine the very direction of marketplace activities in their backyard. And New York has one of the biggest financial backyards in the world. But it's important in more ways than one. And the challenges it faces, whether it be in terms of policing markets for abuse, supporting financial innovation, or assisting people all too often on the sidelines of the financial marketplace, are all too familiar for other regulators as well, making those authorities who do act examples and laboratories of experimentation from which others build their policy. And New Yorkers, never once to skip a beat, are in the center of the policy fray. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to get in touch, just hit me up at Chris Brummer DR. That's at C-H-R-I-S-B-R-U-M-M-E-R-D-R. We'd love to hear from you. Fintech Beat is produced by CQ Roll Call, a leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company.